We're in the series on awe, and uh, the idea here that we've been going after is that over a period of time, over seasons, we can lose our awe. Our awe of God can get stolen from us, right? It can get uh, sideswiped. It can get um, uh, taken. It can get, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not hijacked. Kidnapped. There we go. It's a great morning. My head's not functioning. All right, kidnap, right? And uh, so as, as we're doing this, what I want to do is lock this morning on this idea of that we are to be a people of awe. Hebrews says this, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Know this about God. We don't know everything there is to know. We only know the cards he's played out. We only know what he's told us about him. And what has he told us about him? He's told us about his character. He's told us about his great heart for us. He's told us about his salvation plan for us and how he wants to save people. Does that mean we have all our questions answered? No. Does that mean that there's a lot of stuff that's yet to be rolled out? Yes. All right? And so when it comes to God as a consuming fire, we have to recognize that we're up against something, someone we really don't have a picture of and know what we're up against. And yet he said, come close to me. Come close to me, draw in. And that, scripture says, when you do that, creates awe. It creates this stunning sense of presence. Now here's the problem. It's Sunday morning, you're all at church, and all the high school students have left, so you're all looking at me with very adult minds, or very adult faces, which encase very adult minds, that are going, yes, sermon, message, check, awe, got it, thank you, we'll go home, have lunch, bless, okay. No, 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 no. We, we got to get awe, right? We got to get a picture of awe. So what I want you to do, remember Jesus said, unless you become like children? So I want you to watch this video clip and see what awe looks like, and then we'll come back. So here we go, watch this. Is that great or what? Do you remember when you felt that way about Jesus? Remember when you were first saved? Remember when he got a hold of you? Whoa, right? But after a while, we just get so stuck in the mud, we become adults and we forget. It's okay to be in awe, right? And so uh, the point of the topic here is that awe is good for us. Okay? It's actually healthy and helpful. Um, Sandy Silwell sent this to me earlier this week. She says, in a recent presentation at UC Berkeley, noted psychology professor Lanny Shiota, and I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, talked about what she calls the science of awe. Okay, this idea of being impressed and in awe. Shiota points out how the sensation of awe actually transforms our bodies and minds in ways that are scientifically measurable. Until she began her studies, 
There was little academic research on awe, and yet she discovered that a sense of awe is transformative and perhaps even fundamental to human wellness. In her lab, she found that awe is particularly powerful as a tool to, and get this, to subdue worry. Any of us worry at all about stuff? says that awe is particularly fundamental um, in uh, subduing the sense of worry. She notes that if we don't let ourselves experience awe, we become obsessed on minute details right in front of our noses. We forget the big picture, and we become focused on our own worries and challenges. Anybody? Amen? Right? Don't raise your hand. That would give you away. Okay. She goes on to say, or we think of ourselves as bigger and more important than we really are. So step back and meditate in awe today on God and on God's creation. Find some time to look at something that is bigger than you. The sky, the sea, the sun, we've used the universe. She suggests even a tree. Imagine a complex, imagine the complex detail in that object. And now consider that God, the God who made all that loves you. The God who makes your body do this loves you. You really realize how complicated this motion is? And if you're really good, you can do it backwards. <laughs> right? That, she says, is truly awesome. Developing a growing appreciation of the spectacular generosity of God towards you is the essential first step to developing a truly generous heart. We're coming in the holidays. The holidays are uh, a season of generosity, right? Uh, it's known as the reason for the season. Um, and we, we talk about the season of the holidays, right? And it's capturing something of that awe. How do we lose it? Well, let's just do a quick review from last week. How we lose our awe is, first of all, we become distanced from the story, right? We forget... Uh, what God has done, we can even, I mentioned last week, forget our story and not be in awe of our story anymore. Thinking like, oh yeah, well, whatever. I was one of the wheat shafts that, you know, got collected when the combine of heaven came through and got thrown into the bin, but I really didn't expect to be here. And no, 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 no. We get distance from the story, we forget. Number two, we can't even see it though we're looking right at it. We can look at stuff and just not even see the, the design of the universe or the design of the world or the design of people or, and, and we just can go through the whole day and never once does it occur to us that we have watched spectacular things at work, right? Number three, we become blind and forgetful because of our sin. Our sin wipes us out. Our sin dulls us. Our sin kills it, right? Have you ever, I really love Jesus' sin? Not so much, right? Ever been there? Right? Come to church, yeah, worship. wonder why they're raising their hands. Hmm, kind of weird, right? When really, our sin has just blown us up. You ever been blown up by your sin and it feels dead? That's what sin does. The wages of sin is death, right? Yeah. And then number four, we become distracted by our stuff. Particularly our day and age is uh, really enamored with techno technological power or electronic power, right? 
bigger battery, bigger memory, bigger, right? We do, our, we do that thing, right? Do the thing. And all the while we're doing that thing, we're totally impressed with that thing. We're just like, wow. And we think, this is amazing. What do we say? The TV girl, it's awesome. You've got to have this. And then you'll be really hip and cool like Dean Harding and everybody will want to hang with you, right? Oh, sorry, Dean. And I was just seeing if you're listening. And so it tapping away, right? And what we forget is that the God who designed the universe and the God who designed this planet that operates within 10 to the 37th power, that's the smallest number, that life can exist on it, that we went through in the universe series. You can go back in the series listen to it. And that God who created that planet then created people who can do this. And they have minds that can think and follow his footprints and follow his trails. And they can create this stuff. And the stuff is awesome in that it reflects God. But we get locked on the stuff. We like the stuff better than we like God. Nothing wrong with the stuff. But when we make that, that transfer, and we're going to talk about that later in the series, it's a deadly transfer. Because we worship the creation rather than the creator. So obviously, it matters if our awe of God gets sidetracked or derailed. So the question is, if that was happening to us, right? If, if we were in the process or something was going on and we were suddenly in the process of our awe was getting hijacked or kidnapped, how would we know? Well, in our culture, we have all kinds of early warning indicators. So, for example, on our cars, we have warning lights. In our car, they go off whenever they feel like it. Um, our computers have virus alerts. Our homes have, you know, smoke detectors and CO2 detectors. We have lots of early detectors that tell us something's wrong. The old illustration was the canary in the mine shaft. When miners would go into mines, they would take a canary with them because the canary would sing and chirp, and as long as they heard the canary singing, they knew the air was healthy to breathe. But because the canary's small and fragile, if any kind of poisonous gas came into the mine, suddenly the bird would die, and you'd no longer heard the bird singing. And they knew at that moment, if you didn't hear the canary singing, you better get out of the shaft because there's poisonous gas and it's going to kill you. And this morning, the question on the table is, what's this dangerous gas that we're trying to avoid? And I want to suggest this morning that the dangerous gas we're trying to avoid is a spirit of complaint. All right? A spirit of complaint. Have you ever been swallowed up in a spirit of complaint? Or even better, what's a spirit of complaint look like? So we looked at a spirit of awe, now let's look at a spirit of complaint, all right? Watch this video and see if you can relate to this.
too cute, right? But I'm going, dude, she's at Disneyland. I mean, and that's, I, mean, I was wondering, what's she going to look like when she turns 40? <laughs> Have you ever run into somebody like that? No matter what is set up, they can find a way to complain about it, right? And this is a, a deadly, uh, deadly spirit which underlines something really important. When we have a complaining spirit, it doesn't matter where we are or how good our circumstances are, we will only see what we want to see. Right? And we will grumble and we will complain. There's other English words I could use. Can't use them in church. Right? But a spirit of complaint. What's so deadly about a spirit of complaint? What you find is it's not the circumstances that we find ourselves in that is the issue. It is the attitude we have about the circumstance that we're in that is critical. It's not what I'm facing. It's how I respond to what I'm facing. How I react to it. Everyone complains on some level, right? But... If not carefully monitored and watched closely, complaining can become something that's really habitual and toxic. What do, what do we call toxic complaining? Bitterness, right? Have you ever run into a bitter person? How much fun are they to hang out with? I mean, within the first 30 seconds, right, you start, your battery starts draining, and you think they're going to stop, and they keep going and going and going, and you f- actually feel dirty after a period of time because you just want to go take a shower and go, wow, that was dirty, that was ugly, right? That's uh, something that is a big problem. It's not a situation problem. It's a God problem. It's an awe problem. The problem is I've got my eyes off of God and on the situation so I can no longer see what God wants to do through the situation. And I've dropped into a complaining and bitter spirit. And now it colors everything that I do. Uh, Paul Tripp in his book on awe tracks with the story of the Israelites and their journey. Remember that history in the Old Testament there through the desert? And if you remember the story, they started out grumbling in Egypt. right? They never, before they even got started, they were grumbling with Moses. They started grumbling in Egypt. It continued after the Red Sea. It increased after Sinai, where Sinai, God shows up the way we always want him to, and the way we'd say, if you just revealed yourself, we'd follow you. And he did, and then they grumbled about that. And then it boiled up out of, in the deprivations of the desert, and then came to full fruition after the report of the spies in the promised land. And what did they say after they got the report of the spies in the promised land? Oops, there we go. says, And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us. Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out into the land of Egypt to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. God's love, his protection, his provision, his leadership is completely forgotten, completely dissed. Just taken off the table. Listen to the accusation. You hate us. And you brought us this far to destroy us. Now, I'm not immune to this myself. Uh, I have a saying that drives a lot of you nuts, and I won't stop saying it probably till I die, but you've, you've heard this before. God hasn't brought us this far to kill us, right? 
Most of the time, that's to remind me that he hasn't brought us this far to kill us because I get scared and intimidated and uh, grumbly and complainy half the time myself, and I have to remember God is good, and God created this circumstance and led me here for something good. I just got to see what it is. Right? That's what Israel failed to do. But what's the result? The result is a complete and utter loss of awe. And if you know the story well, they all died in the desert. Only Caleb and Joshua came into the promised land. Caleb and Joshua had a spirit of awe. Right? Their awe of God was bigger than the awe of the problem. What are these stories trying to tell us? Tripp uh, says this illustrates what's called awe wrongness. He says how awe has gotten sidetracked and derailed. It's a complete flip. Instead of being in awe of God, we're hypercritical of him. Instead of praise, we're sarcastic and cutting. Instead of steadfastness, faith, and joy, bitterness, malice, and ungratefulness. Where did it all start? What was, what was the core of the problem? If you look at Numbers 11, another verse it says, it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their, what's the word there? Has anybody in here suffered any misfortune in your years of journeying with the Lord? Is it easy to fall into complaint about that? It says, The people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outlying parts of the camp. Here's what, what Scripture and Tripp's trying to point out, what I'm trying to point out this morning. For us. You want something that really irritates God? You want to get something that chafes his hide? That just... Why do they do that? It's putting up with whining, complaining people. He does not like it. Especially when he's been benevolent and good, and all he gets is it thrown back in his face. Your parents, when you do that for your kids and they throw it back in your face, how well does that go? Right? Oh, joyous, blessed child. For we receiveth that attitude with great comfort and blessing. Is that how you respond? No, if we had videotapes of your home, it wouldn't have gone quite that way, would it? Okay, the same way it bites you, the same way it irritates you, the same way it grieves you, it does that more so to the heart of God. It, this is a tough one that, for him to deal with. If, and Tripp says this, if right now you're complaining about something, doesn't matter if you're complaining about something, you're not complaining because you have a lack of resources problem or a location problem or a situation problem or a people problem or a suffering problem or a fairness problem, a physical health problem, a church problem, a marriage problem, employment problem, a parent problem, a life difficulty problem, a neighbor problem, or even a fallen world problem. Didn't get them all, but probably got most of them, right? Sure, he says, you may be dealing with difficulty in one or more of these areas, but they are not the cause of our grumbling. The tendency to complain is rooted at a deeper level. Here's the bottom line. We complain not because we have a stuff-of-life problem, but because we have an awe problem. We have gotten our eyes off of God and His greatness 
and focused on the greatness of the problem and made that exchange. And in the process, we lose. He says, our problem is not just what we're dealing with, but more foundationally, how our view of God shapes how we see and deal with it. We tend to think of complaining as a little thing, Tripp says. But maybe, just maybe, it's bigger than we realize. He points out that this statement exposes the real problem. Israel didn't just have a big people problem, although they had that, right? They didn't just have a fortified cities problem. They didn't just have a, we're tired of trekking through the wilderness and don't want to have to fight for the land that God promised problem. No, at the bottom of their grumbling was an awe problem. And he goes on to say, of course, what they were facing was bigger than their natural abilities. Of course, they would have had to be willing to fight battles. Of course, the possession of the land would be difficult. Life in this fallen world is hard. God does not orchestrate difficulties in my life. I'm sorry, God does orchestrate difficulties in my life that I would have never chosen to face. Any of you gone through something difficult that you wouldn't have picked? Right? Nodding heads all through the room. Would you, could you have ever picked what you had, had to go through when you first gave your life to Christ? No, right? I certainly couldn't have. And here's where I think Tripp really nails it. He says this. He says, But the words of Israel demonstrate that their complaint is not just about their circumstances, but their complaints about God. They don't like how he's handling it. And they're going to let him know. They're going to HR. And they're going to let him know. If praise is celebrating God's awesome glory, he says, then complaint is anti-praise. Not only does complaint fail to recognize his grandeur, it questions his power and character. If you believe that God is the creator and controller of all that is, which we do, right? Then it is impossible to complain about your circumstances without complaining about God. It is impossible to complain about your circumstances without complaining about God. That's sobering, isn't it? I find it is. He says complaint is allessness verbalized. When we complain, we're just letting others know how we aren't looking at the Lord. Allessness that leads me to question God's power and character will cause me to take my life into my own hands. And because I've taken my life into my own hands, I will rebel against what God calls me to do. I don't think there's a person in here that hasn't done that, me included. Right? You ever done that and gone, oops, not such a good idea. This is what took place on the banks of the Jordan River. Tripp explains, far from a simple grumbling about difficult circumstances, Israel's complaint was deeply theological and morally rebellious. We don't look rebellious, right? We look pretty good. I mean, we live in Mill Creek. We're in the suburbs, right? And we're beautiful people. And uh, we're clean-shaven, except for Jeff. And, you know, (laughs) ho-ho. And, uh, right, we've got, we don't look rebellious. But if you were to say, how does rebellion show up in the suburbs? 
For all that we have, what do you consistently hear among the neighbors, among when you're shopping, when you're at the grocery store? What do you hear when you're on the road driving and someone cuts you off? Complaint. Complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint after complaint to the point where complaint is normal and awe is weird. You walk in a church and go, you ever done that? By the way, have you ever noticed how complaining kills a spirit of worship? You ever had a week of complaint where you just hosed yourself in it and then came into church, tried to worship? Right? Man, dude, what is with these people? Why are they raising their hands? That's kind of weird. A little overdramatic, don't you think? Man, these stupid churches, what? Oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be part of church. I'm worshiping. Well, okay, I'm singing, but my head's going over here because I don't like the lights and I don't like the worship, and John should grow a beard, and, you know. <laughs> and what happens is we bring that spirit into church with us. All Sunday does is reflect what's gone on during the week. And if we're in awe during the week, then corporate awe washes over the front. But if we've spent the week complaining, and we've all complained individually in our little pockets where nobody can see us, right? And we come to church, do we get a sense of awe? No, what do we do? We walk away and go, well, I guess he didn't show up for that one. The problem, what Tripp's trying to point out, it's not God's problem. It's our problem. It's what we bring to the table in this. He says, all this that leads me to question God's power and character will cause me to take my life into my own hands. And because I've taken in my life in my own hands, I will rebel against what God calls me to do. No. No. I said no. Tripp says, you simply can't understand these stories and walk away thinking that for the believer, complaining is a little thing. This passage clearly shows that God does not view it as a little thing at all. And I would add, as I mentioned, there are very few things that provoke the Spirit of God as much as a complaining and grumbling spirit. And just go through Scripture. You've read it. Watch how God reacts to that. The issue of ungratefulness is particularly untasteful to us as humans, but even more so to God. So the trip lists five questions that I think are well worth walking through, and here's, here's what they are. He says, these five questions will either steal or seal your hope. And I like that playoff against each other. They will either steal or seal your hope. The first question is this, is God good? And he says, here's the problem when we ask these questions. He says, we have a church theology and we have a street-level theology. Church theology is what I affirm as the high things of God. And when we get together in believers and we affirm the greatness of God and we affirm the sovereignty of God and we affirm the love of God and, and, and we go, amen, amen, so be it, right? That's the high level. But he says street-level theology, this is where we really operate. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is the day-in and day-out grind when I'm not here. And the question is, is God good in the day-in and day-out grind? And he points out that from an eternal perspective, one of the things we have to understand, which is really hard, I would say this is really hard for me, I think it's really hard for you, and I think this has wiped a lot of people out, but it's this, good is not what we always think is good. 
I know that's backwards English, but, but good is not always what is good. Eternal good, what's going to take and make eternal good is not the same as what's going good down here in my life right now. He tells the story of his father. His father, I don't know the details of it, but it says his father sinned and blew up their entire family. And he said as a redemptive act, when his father got older, he took his father into his home, had his father with his family for three years, hoping that in that process he could be used by God as a a redemptive tool uh, to bring his father around. He said it was a horrific experience. It was bad for his family. And he said not only that, but at the end of three years, his father slipped, fell on the steps, and died. Fell down the steps and died. He said it was a catastrophe. And he said in an elevator at the hospital, because there was nobody there, he lost it and unleashed against God the anger and the bitterness that he felt about how God had handled that. And he said this. He said, I wasn't so worried about God. But he said, it shook me to my core that that kind of vehemence came out of me towards the God I love. And he said, I had to reassess the question again. Is God good? And he said, yes, but I had things to learn in it. Here's the second question. Will God do what he promised? First of all, what does he promise? Because it's pretty easy if you don't know the promises to not be anchored by him. Tripp says that the promises of God are meant to blow your mind and settle your heart. Isn't that good? I like that. The promises of God are meant to blow your mind and settle your heart. The things that he will do for us are meant to just go, whoa, I get to go to eternity? I don't have to go to hell? I get to sell it? Wow! We... That becomes just words. We, we forget the awesome. But it's also meant to settle your heart. Why? Because in the midst of the worry, in the midst of the concerns and all the things going on, it's easy to get busted up. It's easy to get off the promises of God. I mean, we're there right now. We were at the uh, nursing home all night last night. Pam stayed the whole night. She's there again today. Uh, mom's not going to, it's not a question of when, it's, uh, or if, it's a question of when, right? It's a matter of time. We're in the midst of that right now. And the question on the table is, will God do what he promised? And I found what Tripp was saying was tremendously reassuring. Third question that ties right to that is, is God in control? Does it look, I mean, honestly, does it look like God's in control of our planet right now? Does this place look wacky or what? Right? All kinds of things. It used to be one or two things. Now it's, do you find yourself doing what I'm doing? Like you're on MSN and you're reading the headlines and you're just kind of glitching through them? Like, yeah, okay, 30 people died. Yeah, okay, but no, okay, yeah, there was a mass murder. Yeah, okay, the bank was robbed. Yeah, okay. And you just keep glitching through like, like, oh, well, whatever. And it doesn't even register. Remember when that used to cause shock? And now it doesn't even register. And the question is, is God in control. It matters how we answer that because how we answer it will depend on whether we respond in awe or whether we'll respond in rebellion. Whether we respond in awe or whether we respond in rebellion. And how do we know we're being rebellious? Because we will complain 
and we will complain, and we will complain. I think it's part of the fall. I think this goes all the way back to the garden. When Adam and Eve threw each other and the serpent under the bus, and it all started there. But one thing I do know, it hasn't gotten any better. Right? Fourth question. That's an important one. Does God have the needed power? Now, when we ask that in a specific circumstance, for example, does God have the needed power? Could God heal Pam's mom right now, despite the state she's in? Does God have the power? Theologically, we'd say absolutely, yes, right? The guy who created the universe, the guy who created this planet, the guy who created humans obviously has the power. He rose from the dead. He can raise other people from the dead. Does he have the power? And we wrestle with that question a lot because we feel powerless. We feel like we can't pull anything off. You ever had a good idea for God? You know what, God, this is brilliant. I'm, I'm telling you, this is going to really help. Seriously, this is a killer. This is going to do the kingdom a lot of good. If you would just let me win the Mega Millions lottery, I could help a lot of people, God. And I'm telling you what, if, then I could buy a new car and I could get there faster and give them the money quicker. This is fabulous. I'm telling you, I could help you out here. And then he says no. Right? Most of the time, what we're mad at is not that he's in control. What we're mad at is that he said no. Right? He didn't acknowledge our brilliant idea, and we get upset with that. Have you actually thought through how to talk to God in a balanced relational way for a request that you have? I've spent a lot of time on that. I don't want to nag God. I don't want to provoke him. I don't want to manipulate him, and I'm a fantastic manipulator. Anybody else with me? Right? And I will weasel and worm and whine and cry and, and cajole and buddy up. and do, I'll do all kinds of little maneuvers to try and get next to him so that he what? Will give me what I want. Just because he says no doesn't mean he doesn't have control. And just because he says no doesn't mean he doesn't have power. It just means he's really, really wise. And that brings us back to awe. The last question is probably the one that ties us all together and is the closest uh, to the, our heart, and that's this. Does God care about me? I know he cares about important people, but does he care about me? I'm no big britches. I'm, you know... Shoot, there's six billion people on this planet. Seriously, he can know me? Then scripture comes back and says, ah, you have a math problem, do you? Well, there's trillions and trillions of stars, and scripture says he knows all of them by name. How many people do you know by name? I know a lot of people by name. I'm just good at that. But I tell you what, that doesn't come anywhere close to God knowing people by name. And if he can know the trillions of stars by name, is it hard for him to know the billions by name? And if he can know the billions by name, is that hard for him to break it down and to know you by name? He says, I've called you. I've called you. I know you by name. That's an awe-producing idea right there. What does he say? He cares about us greatly, right? So here's the choice. The choice is to honor him. 
Will we honor him? And I think this particularly fits. Which video will we be this morning? Will we be the, <gasps> or are we going to be the, are you seriously kidding me, right, video? Which one are we going to be? We're coming into a season, and it's, of course, called the season of Thanksgiving, right? In Philippians here, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is Paul talking to the Philippian church. And he says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now that's not hard to do. I, I knew I was giving this message this morning. We were at the, at the nursing home, so I came, I thought, oh, I'll hit McDonald's. I love Egg McMuffins. And so I pulled in line. There's only three cars in line. I'm thinking, awesome. And the first car rolls through. The second car rolls Guy says, hey, what's your order? Hey, Egg McMuffin, medium orange juice. Thank you. Boom. We're rolling. And then everything stops. And the first car sits there and sits there. And I was thinking, I should blow my horn. This is an outrage. I have to get to church. Don't they know I was at a nursing home last night? Don't they know my mother-in-law's dying? Don't they know I'm important? And then I sat there and went, dude, you're an idiot. You're being tested on the very thing you're speaking on. <laughs> right? And then I started to laugh. I was like, oh my goodness. It doesn't take much. So the question is, will we honor him? You know, we're coming up to a holiday, and the holiday's called what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. It's not called complaint giving. How did your holiday of complaint giving? Ah, the people stunk and the food was awful. I hate going to that house. Right? And yet often that's what we get, right? Instead of thanksgiving. There's a reason why we have that. Because we're trying to counter the nature of the complaint with what? Gratefulness or thankfulness? Which will we be this week and through the whole holiday season? Will we be the video of awe? or the video of complaint. If God were to flash us up on the screen, which one would play? That's a good picture to keep in mind as we go to the holidays. As you get tested, like you will in this, and I will get tested, keep those two videos in mind and ask God to make you the one of awe, not the one of complaint. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a great message, and I know it's a great message because I know it rattles me and hits me, and I know my friends have the same problem. We can so easily gripe and so easily get knocked sideways. And the world does not serve our kingdom and we get upset and violated and we realize, oh, we're serving your kingdom, not our kingdom. We also have a very good enemy, Lord. Very good enemy. I believe there's actual demons of complaint that know how to nudge and put fuel to the fire to get our self-righteousness all bottled up and burst out. And Lord, often the danger is the people we vomit on with complaint are those the closest to us. We do a lot of damage that way. We're not here to beat us up, Lord, but we're here to take an honest assessment of that and say, God, could you save us from a spirit of complaint, especially in the holidays? Could we watch for your hand and see where you are and have a spirit of awe this season and not get caught up in all the things going wrong in the world, but get caught up in what we see you doing. 
Lord, we ask for your favor in that, and we pray this in your name. Amen.